Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you here on an incredible, beautiful fall weekend. Isn't this incredible? Uh, who needed this weekend? I, I tell you what, I, yeah, something to kind of lift the spirits a little bit. Beautiful weekend, hard week here at the Heights, as we uh, mentioned last week, a week ago, Thursday, one of our pastors, longtime pastors, Buddy Ham, over 17 years on our staff, passed away due to COVID. And uh, not only been on our staff for 17 years, but a lifelong member here, two generations of family before him. So uh, he leaves a big hole. We had a, a celebration of life for him yesterday, and uh, that, that was a, a great time of gathering. But now we begin the, the difficulty of, and, and I know many of you here, you've experienced this in your home and a family. After that's over, now you've got to turn and say, now, now we've got to take the next step. We, we got to do what comes next without somebody that, that we love a lot. And uh, so here we are. We gather today, and, and we continue to worship and minister and serve our Lord. Boy, I want to follow up on what Dale said. I think tonight's just going to be a, a great time. You're on the mountaintop. You're in the valley. Or maybe most of us probably just meandering around in the middle somewhere. Uh, tonight we'll speak to you, encourage you. I believe it's going to be a... A great opportunity to see God. And uh, so I hope you can be here and be a part of that and just put a great exclamation point on this weekend. We are continuing today because we ended up stepping out of the series last week as we were talking about Buddy and just trying to find a biblical way to sort through that and move forward. We're back today in our series, The Gospel, Our Life, Our Answer. I've been really focusing on that word answer because, folks, the gospel is an answer for everything. You say, well, what do you mean by everything? I mean everything, every fear, every failure, every accomplishment, every opportunity. It is the answer for the philosophies, the politics, everything going on in your world. And you know, when I say the gospel is the answer, that's something we're very quick to say, amen. But what we're thinking inside is, what does that mean? What, what does it mean that it's an, an, an answer means I've got a direction, I've got a, a course of action now? Well, folks, God gives us that in the gospel. The gospel doesn't just, as, I, as if the word just was right, <laughs> the gospel does not just save us from sin and death and hell by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Folks, the gospel raises us to life. The gospel gives us power for living life. And, you know, we hear the word power, we usually think over someone. The gospel is a power for doing good. It's a power for giving answers to people that change lives and homes and and whole communities. Man, we look back over the last year, five years, ten years, politics, sexuality, so many different things. A lot of us confused, frustrated. How, how do I respond? How does the church respond? What are we to do? The gospel. I think God's up there scratching his head going, what are y'all looking for? I, I gave you the answer to all this. It is the gospel. And, and, and that means we believe it, we live it, and we share it. Today we're going to talk about living Living the gospel. You know, I made the the comment a couple of weeks ago that too often we think of the gospel as something in the past, something in our past. Back back there, I needed the gospel. 
And man, praise God, he provided it. Back, back there I was saved. Back there I was loved and forgiven by God. And I'm very grateful for that moment. But the gospel is done. It served its purpose, right? But is that what the Bible says? The, the, the Bible says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's past tense, so now walk in him. That's present tense. How did I receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By faith in the gospel. So how do I continue to walk in Christ Jesus the Lord? By faith in the gospel. Now, what does that mean? Well, we've spent two weeks unwrapping what we believe, understanding what it means that we say we believe. And by the work of the gospel, that means I believe I'm deeply and securely loved by God. I, I have an identity in Christ. I've got an importance. I've got a reason to wake up and live today. All of that because of Christ. And I process life. I process people. I process issues through those lens of being loved, of, be, of having an importance, of having an identity through all of that. Man, God's given us incredible blessings for our future, for our present. And with those blessings comes a responsibility. I think too often, probably because of preachers that just peddle the gospel as a gift. You need this gift, get this gift. But the gift has a responsibility. It's not you and I paying God back for the gospel. It's not us trying to earn the gift. It's that I've got this gift and there's a life that corresponds to that. I want to take a moment today and look at four or five passage, four or five ideas of what it means. And in these particular passages, there's a one-to-one correlation between you got the gospel, well, then this is what you're supposed to do. And, and this isn't an exhaustive study. There's a lot more. I'm just trying to show you, hey, wait a minute. God says you got the gospel. There's a way to live. So let's get started. Number one, the gospel makes a call on our lives to do for others, to be for others what I need and what I depend upon Christ to be for me. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just like, no differently than what God did for you. And that's all that's saying. Hey, what God did for you, you now do that for others. I'm guessing, I sure do, I'm guessing you also, boy, I need God's kindness. I, I, I need his gentleness and patience with me. Boy, do I need his forgiveness And that makes us all alike. We tend to focus on the differences and statuses, but the one place we're all alike is we're absolutely, totally dependent upon God for these things. And since I'm full in God for these things, that's what we believe, right? I have these things from God. I I believe that I have them in full. I never empty the bucket, there's a, there's a fresh load for me every day of God's kindness and God's forgiveness. So since I have that, I'm now to give it. At least that's what God seems to be saying. Forgiven people, forgive. Let, let's look at this. Look at uh, Matthew 18 with me. Turn in your, your Bibles there. Matthew's first book of the New Testament, about, I don't know, 80% of the way, maybe a little more through your Bible. Matthew chapter 18, I think one of the more challenging 
stories that Jesus tells. And when I use the word story, the New Testament word is parable. And a parable is not not a true story. We're not reading about true events. It's a made-up story to make a point. A parable has a point. It actually does not have two, three, four, five points. When, when you walk away from a parable, you're saying, what's the point? What was that story trying to tell me? So let's, let's see if we can figure out what the point is. Verse 23, Matthew 18, verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him, owed him 10,000 Talents. Now, I'm guessing a lot of us don't know what a, what a talent is. Your Bible, if it's got notes, it may dab down in the bottom or across the side. It may tell you how much a talent was worth and may try to give some translation into a monetary value today. And I could do that for you right now, but I don't think the monetary value is the issue. You need to understand what they heard when they heard 10,000 talents. And what they heard was an incomprehensible number. So what would be an incomprehensible number for us? You know, if I said I owed a million dollars, you'd go, how much did your house cost? What kind of car do you got? Did you get in some kind of trouble? I mean, it wouldn't be, you might wonder how I got there, but it's not entirely unbelievable that I'm a million dollars in debt. Now, if I said I was a billion, you'd go, you, you don't even have the ability to get a billion dollars in debt. You know, you'd wonder what I meant. You'd wonder what I was trying to say. I actually think, though, that you and I, we can grasp a million. We can grasp a billion. I think where we lose touch with reality is a trillion. Maybe, that, maybe that's just me. You know what, a trillion, I don't even know what that means anymore. If you as an individual said you were a trillion dollars in debt, I would not for one second believe you. I, I would think you meant something else. That's what they're hearing right now. Now, they know Jesus is telling, it's just a story, and he says, hey, this guy's 10,000 talents, and they're going, what? No, that's not real. Nobody's 10,000 talents. You know, I wonder if that's how we're to understand our sin. I I know I probably have a tendency, hey, listen, I know my sin is bad, and I know it adds up to a debt, but I probably think I can put a number on that where Jesus would say, you know, whatever number you think you're coming up with, I, I can tell you this, you don't have a clue of the debt you own before a holy living God. I don't know. Let's read on. I took too much time there. Verse 25. And since he could not pay his, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The, the master, the king, did not give him more time. He didn't cut the debt in half. He forgave him. He walked out of there owing nothing. An incredible moment. It's amazing the gifts we can receive, the gifts we can say that we believe we have received and not receive them. Say, so well, how do, you, how do you know he didn't receive it? Well, let's, let's keep reading. But, now what does but mean? But, but means in contrast to what we just saw, in contradiction to what just happened. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii was a day's wages for the common working job. Maybe we would say minimum wage today. hundred days, that's three months, Right? So if we were to translate that, you know, that's like $10,000, $12,000 maybe. 
today. Now, that's, a, that's not pocket change, is it? That's real. That, that's real money. I bet, hey, say, hey, I can give you 10 grand. You want it? I'm guessing everybody would say yes. I'm guessing nobody walks away from that. That's very real. It's also very measurable. You know, my debt before God, incomprehensible. Our debt to each other, very real. 10,000, that's very, very real, but also measurable. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I feel like I got to stop every three words here. <laughs> you know, you and I will go out into the world and I'm, we're probably not trumpeting this everywhere we go, but there's people in our home, our family, our neighbors. Work. There's people that know we're Christians, which means we're kind of saying, I'm, I'm deeply loved by God. I'm, I've got eternal life. I've been forgiven. Man, for somebody who has all that, I wonder what kind of impact it makes. I, I wonder if ever people look at us and think, boy, for somebody that has all you believe you have, all you say you have, boy, the way you're treating them doesn't seem really consistent. At, at least in the story here, that's what the fellow servants were saying. So they went and told on him. That's not what it says, but that's what they did. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now, at the end of verse 34, that's the end of the story. And so we're supposed to stop and say, hey, what's the point of this story? In this case, Jesus apparently does not want us to miss the point of the story. So he says, hey, just stop thinking. I'm just going to tell you right now what the point of the story is. So also... My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Boy, that's rough. Now, let me tell you what is not happening here. This, the point here is not that there is, a, there is a situation where God gives forgiveness, and then if you mess it up, do the wrong thing with it, then God takes it back. You, you were forgiven, now you're unforgiven. That is not what that just said. What God is doing here is he's moving forward with the reality that you never accepted, you never trusted his forgiveness to begin with. This isn't God taking something back. This is us through our actions in life saying, I'm not trusting in your forgiveness. I don't receive your forgiveness. You say, well, how do I know? Well, it's just as simple. Forgiven people forgive. That doesn't make forgiveness easy. As a matter of fact, here's the difficulty of me getting ready to move on to point two. Today's message is not about forgiveness, and yet, boy, a topic of forgiveness brings up a load of baggage, doesn't it? I mean, everyone in here has got people to forgive, people who aren't sorry, people who aren't changing, some of them for which the debt is very, very great. It's not pocket change what they did to me. It's, it's very real. And yes, the Bible does give wisdom and guidance. Hey, listen, when you love somebody, you don't let them get away with evil. Forgiveness and consequences, forgiveness and boundaries can go hand in hand. And we're not really talking about that today. But folks, even when I'm bringing about consequences or boundaries, it's done in a spirit of forgiveness. It's operating from a base of forgiveness. The goal is to let that person's debt go. That's what, we're, that's what we're working on because forgiven people forgive. 
Okay, now we're going to move to number two, and number two is worse than number one. So number three, not so bad. Number two is just as bad. (laughs) You know what? The call of the gospel in our lives calls us to submit to each other and each other's needs. You know, we, we hear that word, and we think submission means I let somebody do whatever they want to me. No, submission means I'm willing to yield ground to serve your Need. I'm submitting, I'm yielding to meet the need in your life. Look at 2 Corinthians here. They, who's they? The people who are always around you and watching. There's always somebody around you and watching. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from what? Your confession of the gospel. Here again, a one-to-one correlation. I confess that I believed in the gospel. Oh, okay, then you need to submit. You need to yield the floor to others. You know, this is an interesting uh, idea here. Submission may be the most hated word in the church. You thought I was going to say among people. No, no, the church hates this word. I would say, and I'm totally making this number up, but I'm not going to be far off. More than half the churches in America think they need to apologize for God saying something so stupid. And we minimize that word and we dismiss that word. I, uh, I did a wedding this is years, years and years ago right here in our community. Uh, not walking distance, but pretty close. And uh, I, uh, I, I, you know, when you're doing a wedding, a funeral at another pastor, you know, you, we'll call each other and say, hey, you want to come in this door and you can use this. And hey, any questions? You know, just a little cordial exchange there so this person can come in and do ministry in the church there. So uh, this pastor called me and said, hey, I understand you're doing a, a wedding in our, in, our, in our church this Sunday or Saturday. I said, yeah, I am. And this couple, and we talked about how wonderful they were and blah, 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 all that normal stuff. And then he said, hey, listen, just one thing. You cannot use the word submit at any point in your, in your service. And I went, what? And he said, you, you, you cannot say or use the word Submit. I thought, this, boy, this is really strange. And I said, well, I'm not actually going to. I think God might use it, though, during the course of my sir. Can I just read the Bible? And I actually said it that way because you know what a fun guy I am. And, uh, and you know what the person said? No. And I said, well, I mean, if I mean, I can't even read a, a, a passage. He goes, no, our people find that confusing and offensive. What I want to say, well, you've done a horrible job of showing your people God. You know, and sadly, I mean, hey, listen, we know where that word comes from. We've got a large male population that has used that word to abuse. We've used that word to say, hey, I'm king of the mountain. Apparently, God thinks I am right about everything. And so no wonder we hate that word. And we forget, actually, that the word does not just apply to women. It applies to all believers. All believers are to live a life of submission. See, I confess to the gospel. I confessed that I believe Jesus is God. I confessed that I want to follow him and be just like him. You know, if I said, pick one word that describes Christianity or one word that describes you, oh, we'd say love, right? We'd say forgiveness. Maybe there'd be three or four other words that would be in the running for that one word, word that nobody would use. Guaranteed, nobody would use the word submission. 
I think it's the single word that describes Christ. You know, you say, no, 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 Christ was love. Yeah, but what is love? I mean, love is such a meaningless... I mean, I love my wife and I love pizza. What does that tell you about the word love? It doesn't define anything. You know what love is? It's submission. You know what Jesus was doing every day he walked on earth? He was submitting, he was yielding to the will of the Father. Why? Because he was yielding to the need in your life. He wasn't doing whatever you wanted him to do. And he wasn't letting you walk all over him. But he absolutely yielded to the point of his death to meet your need. This is who we follow. And here's the simple idea. Here's why we don't submit. Because I feel unloved. And I feel unimportant. And I don't know who I am. And as I go out into the world to get those questions answered, man, we start clawing and fighting each other. You, you, you are a competition. You're a competitor to me getting the needs I need in my life met. And that creates all the conflict that we enjoy every single day on planet Earth. Ah, but the believer... I'm not not clawing and fighting anymore. I'm not in that fight. All my needs eternally, presently have been met in Christ. So I can yield the floor. At least that's what we say we believe. Where does our belief show up? Where does our belief get lived out? Oh, that's hard. Okay, let's go on to an easier one. Hey, the gospel calls us just look at people differently. Imagine, we don't look at people the same. We have concluded this, that one died for all. That's the gospel message, right? So there's a gospel. Okay, now since there's a gospel, from now on, never again, do we regard anyone according to the flesh. In the New Testament, when you hear the word, see the word flesh, that's just a, 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 a that, that means our natural self. Me, me doing the nat- I'm not following God. I'm not following his word. I'm not under the control of the Holy Spirit. I'm just doing what comes natural. So how do we look at each other naturally? I mean, we all, we all do the, hey, one simple way, you do this all day, every day when you see a person, friend or foe. Somebody's approaching you. This is somebody I can enjoy. This is somebody I need to guard against. I mean, we just constantly size everybody up, friend or... Another way we size people up... Now, we don't ever say this out loud, but it happens, right? What can you do for me? Every relationship in life. What can you do? What do I need from you? So we size people... Hey, we could make a list of maybe another two, three, four things. The bottom line is all of the different ways we look at people, we don't look at them that way anymore. We look at them through the lens of the gospel. We look at them through the lens of Christ. What does that mean? I look at somebody, they either have Christ or they don't have Christ. Now, the church is actually kind of good at doing that in a very mean and judgmental way. What I just said does not mean you and I look, oh, there's a good person, they're going to heaven. I know that because I know everything. Oh, there's a bad, horrible person. They're going straight to hell. They're not passing go. They're not collecting $200, nothing. They're just going straight to hell. That's not what that means. Every person I look at, I look at through the lens of the gospel, the lens of Christ. That means you have the gospel 
or you don't. If you have the gospel, then, man, I'm praying that the gospel is flourishing in your life. I'm asking God to use me to encourage the gospel in you, to help the gospel in you, to help you live it. And if I perceive, maybe I know because you've told me, or I just perceive this person does not have the gospel, what does that mean? Oh, my gosh, they're living a frustrating, desperate life. They don't have the answer. They don't know their love. They don't know how important they are. They don't have an identity. And so God would, I want to pray they come to the gospel. I want to pray they come to Christ. God, I want you to use my life. Use my words. Use my encouragement. Use them watching me to be an attractant, a lure to the gospel. That's how we look at everybody now. That's how we're sizing people up. How about this one for where the rubber meets the road? The gospel calls on us to fulfill Our responsibilities. Gospel people keep promises. Gospel people pay bills. Gospel people fulfill contracts. Gospel people show up where they said they were going to show up. Let me show you a great story in the Bible. There's a good chance you've never read it. This may be one of the most unread stories in the New Testament, but it's an incredible story. Turn to Philemon. Philemon. You'll find it. Go to the end of your... This is a hard one to find. Go to the end of the Bible, Revelation, and just start backing up. You'll go through some small books, and you'll finally hit a big one. Hebrews. When you get to Hebrews, you're almost there. Philemon is right before Hebrews. Okay? Philemon... One, one, it's a letter, one, one page long. We're going to read the whole thing and see what God has for us in this letter. Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Paul's writing Philemon, that's why it's titled that. And Epipha, our sister, and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Okay, we just already learned something about Philemon. He's probably significantly wealthy. Because he has a house that the church meets in. In, in. in this era of history, you know, in America, we have all kinds of sizes of houses. It's not like there's three sizes. You, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of sizes. That was not, not been true in most of the world. It's not been true in most of history. You have a kitchen and you have a place to sleep. Almost everything else you do outside. And it's small, small, what we would call home. And he's got a home big enough that the church is meeting. And I don't know if the church is 40 people or 200 people. They're inside. They're in a courtyard. But Philemon, I know he's he's of means. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the what? Saints. Remember, I told you a couple weeks ago, you're, you, the Bible calls you a saint. If you're in Christ, you're, you're a saint. You're a holy one. Gosh, if we just believe the identity that we've been given. And, and here's an example of, that, of, that, of the Bible saying that. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become more effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints... That's you and me. We've been refreshed through you. So Philemon sounds like a pretty cool guy, doesn't he? This guy's blessed Paul. He blesses the church. He blesses believers. He's a good, good person. Verse 8, accordingly, though, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. 
That's a really fancy biblical way of saying, I could make you do this, but I want you to choose to do this, okay? I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Paul is writing this from prison. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Onesimus, what he's referring to there is a spiritual father. I led Onesimus to Christ. Now, what's not clear is why is Onesimus in, in jail? He could be a fellow prisoner or he could be somebody that is daily going in and out of the prison. Why would he be daily going in and out of prison? Because in this day in prison, nobody took care of you. Which is why the New Testament says, take care of the prisoners. Many of them are in prison because of me. Make sure they got food and water. Make sure they get a new blanket every now and then. Because the prison wasn't providing that for them. So Onesimus could have been going out. We we don't know. But he gets to know Paul. And Paul leads him to the Lord. Verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you. But now he's indeed useful to you and me. Paul's having a little fun there, the, a little word play. The word Onesimus in the Greek language means useful. So what he just said here is, hey, useful is useless to you, but useful has now become useful to you and me. Paul's having a little fun. He's sitting in prison. He's got a lot of time to think about funny sentences. I'm sending him back to you. Oh, okay, let me stop right there. Verse 12. I'm sending him back to you. Very, very important line. Okay, we're going to come back to that. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. Paul just said a second time, I could make you do this, but I want you to choose to do it. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you, parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a, ooh, a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and the Lord. Okay. Onesimus is a slave, and Philemon's his owner. And Onesimus is a runaway slave. We'll come back to that. Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. I mean to say nothing of the fact you owe me your own life. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It's just a little manipulation there, isn't it? Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. Oh, I know you're going to do the right thing. I write to you. Have you ever said to your kids, and I know you're not going to do the right thing. That's not our confidence. That's a command. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me because I'm not done asking you for stuff. Prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. I hope I'm going to get out of prison, have a chance to come and stay with you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay, you might remember when I started this, I said we're going to see a place where the gospel gives guidance, gives instruction to both the oppressor and the oppressed. 
Now, I'm probably stretching those terms, I mean, especially in how we understand them today, because slavery here is not what comes to our mind when we think of American slavery. I'm not saying that kind of slavery didn't exist in the older New Testament. It did exist, and the Bible speaks very harshly against kidnapping somebody, taking them against their will, selling them over here to a life of slavery. The Bible absolutely speaks against that. The Bible is often accused of being very favorable to slavery because, I mean, it just a lot of times it seems like it's, hey, if you're a slave, this is what you need to do. Hey, if you're a slave owner, this is what you need to do. And we want the Bible to say, say slavery's wrong. The problem is the slavery being referred to is not what we think of. Do you know who enslaved Onesimus? Onesimus slaved Onesimus. More than likely, what happened is he got himself into a bind somewhere, got himself into a trouble. There was some kind of financial aspect to that. Now, Onesimus went to Philemon. By the way, you and I, to this day, do the very same thing. We get in trouble, we get in a little bit bind, and what do we do? We don't call it Philemon, we call it a bank. We call it payday loans. And the Bible says you're enslaving yourself. And so he goes to Philemon and says, man, I'm in, a, I'm in a bind. Can you help me out here? If you can do this, it's probably something pretty overwhelming. It wasn't, hey, you know, hey, could I have 100 bucks? It was, hey, you got 10 grand? And here's what I'll do. I will be, and the, the word used here, I'll be a bondservant. I will bind myself to you for one year, five years, ten years. I mean, obviously, how long would have been based on what he was asking for. It's, it's, in some ways, it's very similar to just an employment situation. It's just an employment situation you can't really get out of. And boy, where it could get really difficult because, you know, we have good bosses and we have bad bosses. We have good owners and we have bad owners. Boy, you, you enslave yourself to a bad person. That can, that can really be a, a bad deal. Now, Onesimus <laughs> ran away. We don't know why. He didn't like Philemon. Did, didn't like what Philemon was asking him to do. Maybe he just didn't like being looked at as a slave. Sometimes we put on a status. We put on a, you know, we're wearing a situation in life. And people around us will look down on us, right? They think we're less. They think we're less than. Maybe, maybe he just, you know, had been living a while as a slave and just didn't like. I don't know what it was, but he, he ran away. So now here he is in prison or in and out of prison with Paul. Obviously, they get to know each other, Paul sharing the gospel with him. And somewhere in the course of that, Philem- or Onesimus tells Paul where he's from. And Paul says, oh, I've been there. Man, there's a great church there. It meets in the house of. And Onesimus says, Oh, I, 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 I know him very well. Oh, how do you know him? He's my master. What are you doing here? I ran away. Oh, you got to go back. You see, we got a whole letter here that we've got telling Philemon what to do. We're seeing what the gospel is calling Philemon to do. We're not privy to the conversation that Paul and Onesimus has, but that one little phrase there tells us exactly what that conversation was. you you got to go back. I don't want to go back. You, you have to go back. People of the gospel don't leave people holding the bag. 
Well, they're not, they're not even looking for me anymore. We've, we've all moved beyond that. But no, you, you, you got to go back. It doesn't matter whether he's moved on. It doesn't matter if he's fine without you or it or the money. You got to go back. People of the gospel don't do that. And what did Onesimus do? He's the one carrying the letter, by the way. He's the one that delivers the letter to Philemon. And what's Philemon told to do? I mean, in short, hey, you can do this, you should do it. Let him go. Let him off. I don't know how much it's going to cost you, but you know what? Let let him go. You know, to be honest with you, I I don't know of another letter of Paul. I don't know of uh, of really another place in the Bible that it's, I mean, I read this and say, gosh, Paul, you're really, I mean, doesn't it read like it's kind of manipulative? You know, God, why, why the manipulation? Why is that coming through in the word like that? You know, we've got to remember about the Bible. It's a lot like Jesus. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. 100% man. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He's got to go to sleep. He bleeds. He dies. He's a 100% human being who also happens to be in a very mysterious way that we cannot understand 100% God. He can tell a storm to stop, and it does. Not in a little while, right that second. He can walk on water, he can raise the dead, and he knows everything about you without you even opening your mouth. He is 100% God, 100% man. Guess what? The Bible's the exact same thing. This is 100% man. They're, they're They're not, hey, God, could you repeat that last line again? I didn't get it. They're not taking dictation from God. Moses, Isaiah, Paul, Peter, John, their life, their experience, their personality, it it all comes through. And sometimes it comes through in ways that isn't so pleasant. But here's the crazy thing. When the ink is dry, that word is God's word. Not, Not the big idea, the actual word on the page. And while there's all these personalities writing in all these styles, writing in all different kinds of time periods and all throughout history, and yet all of a sudden today when you and I pick it up, it reads like one person wrote it from Genesis to Revelation. It reads with one consistent, constant, clear theme because while it's 100% man, it's 100% God. Okay, so God, why'd you... Why'd you let that manipulation come through? Why are you wanting to use it? You know, folks, I I, I wonder if God is saying, in this incredible free gift I give you, there is a responsibility. When you receive this gift, it mandates a life. We don't lie when everybody else is lying. We choose purity, not when others don't choose purity, when we don't even talk about purity anymore. We fulfill contracts we'd already gotten out of. So why did it all go, 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 go work? No. People of the gospel don't leave people holding the bag. And folks, let me say it again. This is not about you earning what God has given you or, or paying back what God is giving you. It's that people around us know we're a people of the gospel. And my words and my actions and my responses, they say something about Jesus. Have you ever said or you ever thought, well, they're a Christian. What difference did it make in their life? Yes, you have. We all look at people who call themselves Christians. Where is it? I mean, that's just real. 
A single word, a single response, a single action says something about Jesus. And what did Jesus say? The gospel is the power of God for everybody's good. And what's my life saying? It's not that powerful here. Hadn't made any difference in my life. It's just a nice little gift. I take it over here and I shove it on the shelf. I'll pull it out when the place is on fire. And I'm going to go on living like everybody around me who doesn't have the answer. Therefore, giving away my opportunity to share the answer that meets every need. One more. I'm running long. I'm sorry. I know it. But very, very important. Turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. The gospel makes a call on our lives to work. Look, look up here. To, uh, you see the work? See how it's all capitalized? In Twitter world, that means I'm yelling. Okay? The gospel calls me to work at unity with other believers. We, we are to work at this in our lives. You say, well, what does that work look like? Well, think of two of the words we've used today. It means we're forgiving and it means we're submitting. Because anytime a group of people are together for any amount of time, if there's going to be real unity, unity isn't angel dust that falls on some of God's favorite people. It happens because there's a work to make it happen. Forgiving and submitting. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I want you to walk worthy of what's the calling? The gospel. I want you to walk worthy of the gospel that you've been called by and that you've received in your life. What does that look like, Paul? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. That means putting up with each other. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I want to focus on that word eager. You know what, folks? Every, every Sunday, you and I will we'll, we'll read something in Scripture. We'll be moved by something in Scripture. And you know what we'll do? We'll say, boy, I tell you what, I need to do that. Boy, next time an opportunity comes for me to, you know, work at you, know, I'm sure going to do that. Okay, well, you missed the word eager. Eager doesn't mean the next time I have an opportunity. Folks, eager means 100% of the time that you're approaching another believer. 100% of the time that you're approaching the body of Christ. You're thinking, how do I repair unity? How do I encourage unity? How do I make sure unity is flourishing? What that verse means, eager to maintain unity, it means that when you and I are walking to our car in a few moments, every single one of us should be able to say, here is a very concrete thing I did for unity in the body of Christ. And if you walked to your car and got nothing, you disobeyed what God said to do. Every time you leave church, every time you leave a believer, every time you hang up the phone, you should be able to know what you did to foster, encourage, repair unity. There's one body, verse 4, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all, through all, and in all. Folks, our unity is one God and one gospel. That's our unity. And what do I mean by that's our unity? I mean, that's why we got in the car today and and came up here, or that's why we engaged online. And we got here, and we all sang the same songs, and we all sat here, listened to the guy up front, ranting and raving and going on. We did all that for one reason. 
We unify around one God and one gospel. Let me tell you what that does not mean. We did not get in our car today because we all have the exact same opinion on things like, oh, masks, vaccines, politics, freedom. We, we didn't get in the car and come to it. You know, I'd imagine there's some commonality, but we're not all the same. We're not in the same place on those things. That's not our unity. One God, one gospel. Now, I tell you what, some of these other things are important. Some of them are opinions and preferences. Some of them are not. Some of, them, some of these other things, actually, we can put a Bible verse with it. It's not my opinion. It's my biblical conviction. I mean, where did all the denominations come from? It came from a moment where we turned from the gospel and we began to look at other things we believe and, and we got more focused on the difference and then those things. And, and hey, folks, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm telling you, I don't know the answer to that. Some of these other things count. They mean something. They're important. We have to figure out how to exercise those and work through those. But not at the expense of the gospel. Here's what I know. Whether we're talking about 2021 or 1221 AD, here's what I know. When a church, when a body of people gather around the celebration and the work of the gospel, 100% of the time, you will be looking at a body of people that are unified, that are strong, and are in their best position to change a heart, a home, a community, even an entire culture, the church in Rome showed it to us. And 100% of the time, we move off the gospel and begin to put our focus on other things, some of them of biblical importance. We will 100% of the time be weaker, divided, and in a much less position to impact a person a home, a community, and a culture. You know, folks, we have strong convictions about masks, vaccines, and freedom. I, 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 don't, I don't know what to tell you about all of those things. They're, they're very important, and they're important to us. And I don't think I am, I don't think the Scripture is telling you not to have those beliefs, not to have those convictions. But if they lead you to part company with another believer, if they lead you to hate believers, hate the church. Now, we don't use the word hate. We just have emotions and actions that all fall under one word, hate then in all your rightness, I'm actually assuming you're right. I'm not assuming that you're wrong. In all your rightness, you have served well the purposes of Satan. Folks, don't think everything Satan does is dripping with poison and fangs and is clear evil. Oh, Satan can absolutely come alongside you and me for very good and important things and lead us as far away from God and what he wants for us as we've ever been. So I don't, I don't, I don't get how I've served any purposes of Satan. Well, then wake up because you're clueless to what is going on. 
We live in a nation that is running as far and fast from God as it's ever been. And a lot of us think we're concerned about it. You know, all our convictions, as important as they are, God's never told me, use the government, use your freedom, use this to change a heart, a home. Use your mask to change a culture. Use your hatred for a vaccine to change a culture. No, God's only given me one thing to do that. He said the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I'm not saying we don't have to work through these other issues. I'm saying we're giving the battle away. We have not shown up at all for what's going on in America because we're about so much other that's more, it's more important to us. Your view on a mask and a vaccine and freedom is more important to you than the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we say, I have received the gospel... I'm saying I hold the answer. I hold the power of God. And everybody you know is watching to see what that means. And America is changing. The church in America is not changing anybody anymore. We're as weak as we've ever been. We're giving away our chance to share. Not the only answer, but the most important answer. We'll talk about sharing next week. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to do it in half the time I did it today. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us live it. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for every person in this room, every person watching online that we have no joy, that we have no peace, that we have no comfort. I pray for us an absolutely awful week until we stop and think about the gospel and how it's being lived in my marriage, my parenting, my work, my school, my hobbies, my friends, my neighborhood. God, until we start taking serious, God, we have such an ability to hear things and agree and say amen and walk away and it mean nothing. May we not have one moment of peace until we stop and think about the gospel and pray about the gospel and pray about where and how I'm living it and what it means to live it and God help us to think that the only reason I live the gospel is so I'm happy whatever the cost whatever the inconvenience whatever the disagreement may I live the gospel in Jesus name help us Jesus help us amen